seated. And now it's my opportunity to say good evening. Matt already introduced me. I'm Steve, and uh, I have uh, the privilege of serving as one of the, the pastors here. Uh, we're going to continue, as he said, our journey through Judges. Uh, we're in Judges 6 and 7 tonight, as we're going to be looking, as he put it, all these uh, weird and wonderful characters through whom uh, God works. And so if uh, you haven't already done so, please open up your Bibles to that point um, as you're doing so. I'm just going to lead us, if you wouldn't mind, in a quick word of prayer uh, before we look into his word tonight. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, thank you now that we can come to your word and we come to the one, as we just sung about, that only you alone can rescue and you alone can save. We pray, Lord, as we come to this passage tonight that so clearly portrays that, that you would open our eyes, um, that you would open our hearts as we look to you, the one who truly is the giver of life. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence here with us. And we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to invite you to, in your mind's eye, uh, imagine a large clock. And I don't mean a digital one. I wish we had a large one. It's pretty large in the back. But I don't even mean one like that. I mean more a clock like maybe is on the screen right now. To think about a massive clock like Big Ben. And as you look at it, it is natural and quite easy for most of us to look at the hands as they move around that dial, simply displaying the time of day and, and nothing more. But we know there's a reality going on behind the scenes where energy is being stored up and released and gears are moving and turning that are moving the hands of that clock. And truth be told, most of us would fail to fully grasp what is happening to produce the result that we see on the clock face? Well, Matt just read a little while ago from Judges 6 and 7. And as Judges 6 begins, it's as though the writer is, is opening up the back of the clock to allow us to see not only the observable events in Israel's experience as a nation in their history, but also what lay behind them. The gears, if you will, that were turning in their hearts and their lives that had produced the situation that they found themselves in. And were once again, if you've been with us, pointed to a cycle that should be familiar to us by now as we've navigated our way through the book of Judges. Those four stages of rebellion, rescue, oh, excuse me, rebellion, retribution, rescue, and repeat. And we've seen this played out several times now as we see the same thing happening in the book of Judges in chapter 6. Once again, we see Israel in rebellion, choosing rebellion, and the retribution that follows at the hands of the Lord. Look at verse 1 again where it says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he, the Lord, gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Now, for the sake of time, we, we condensed our reading tonight. And just for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize a whole swath of, of narrative there. Um, and how, I, how bad this situation really was for Israel. So these hordes of, of Midianites and those allied with them are described, as you read the whole section, as being too numerous to even count. That they brought such devastation in their marauding and their pillaging. It was so extensive that Israel would be left with nothing once their raids had come through. The people of Israel literally headed for the hills, resorting to hiding themselves and their property in caves and crevices. But they still found themselves having practically nothing. 
And in their desperation and discomfort, they cried out to God for rescue and relief as is natural for us to do, right? When we find ourselves in uncomfortable circumstances and challenging situations. See, the hands on the clock were showing that it is a pretty bad time for the people of God. And the Lord did respond to their cries, but not probably in the way that they expected or likely would have wanted. Because instead of sending a deliverer like he had before, God delivered a message through a prophet. Who essentially opens the back of the clock for them to expose what lies behind in the circumstances of their oppression. Look at verse 8. Listen to what this prophet said to them. And he says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Israel is given a clear reminder of how God was the one who had rescued them and redeemed them from slavery, how he entered into this covenant relationship with them, even giving them the land of promise by driving out the likes of the Midianites who were now oppressing them. But while they were meant to be a people for his very own in all this, worshiping him alone, Israel had not listened. Interesting, God had listened. Israel had not listened. But gone after other gods, namely the gods of the Amorites. And so we're introduced to Gideon. Gideon is someone who was quite literally immersed in the circumstances brought on by all this. If you read this section later on your own that we summarized and skipped over... Uh, I'm going to read some of it now. We find him hiding in a wine press. And if you're not um, familiar with the wine press, it's essentially a hole in the ground. And it's not usually there where you beat out the wheat, but that's what he was doing. It was a secluded place to keep it hidden from the Midianite raids. Normally it would be done in an open air space on a, on a big cloth and you would throw uh, the useless bits along with the wheat up into the air and the, the breeze would carry it away, letting the good stuff fall to the ground. And it's under these circumstances, as him, he's hiding here, that the Lord appears to him. And the way he greets him, this man hiding in a hole is almost comical. When he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And it doesn't take much imagination to detect what may be a bit of angst and frustration in Gideon's response. In light of what we already know, the gears turning, if you will, the gears of rebellion that have been turning behind all this, it's clear that Gideon had failed to fully grasp Israel's circumstances. Look at verse 13. So he's been greeted as the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon responds, um, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told, about, told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. What had Gideon concluded? He looked at what was happening all around him and arrived at a conclusion that was absolutely and utterly wrong. Gideon looked at the seven years of oppression under the Midianites and concluded this. The Lord has abandoned Israel. 
But in reality, the gears turning behind the scenes, we know that Israel had abandoned the Lord who had loved, rescued, and delivered them in the past. And so Gideon failed to fully grasp the situation. And truth be told, our natural tendency is to do exactly the same. Like Gideon, we can fail to fully grasp the circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in. We watch the hands of circumstance move on the clock face of our lives and fail to see how the inner workings influence and shape what we're experiencing. What did Gideon fail to see? Two, two things, one of which is quite obvious, the other maybe not as much. Now, it can be true that things go wrong, pain becomes our companion, and our world can turn upside down when we choose to walk away from God. In our hearts first, and then in our habits. Now, this was the case for Gideon and Israel. Now, to be clear, we've said this before from this very same spot, it's not always the case that negative circumstances come into our lives that are directly associated with some form of personal rebellion on our part. The Bible's clear that we live in a broken world, a world broken by sin, and we can experience incredible pain, confusion, and evil for reasons not associated with our personal choices. So while we bear that in mind, <laughs> we cannot simply dismiss the possibility that there are times when we do bear a measure of personal responsibility if things are going wrong in our lives and things fall apart. When the wheels come off the wagon, we need to honestly consider if we've been loosening the bolts along the way by the choices that we're making. And Gideon failed to grasp this, and we can too. So that's the first thing. And that's pretty obvious. But Gideon also failed to see something else. And that was the heart of God and the love with which he pursues his people to turn them back to himself. No matter how Gideon saw things, the reality was that God had not abandoned Israel. If he had, he simply would have given them up into their idolatry and rebellion. Instead, he gave them into the hands of the, of the Midianites. And we're going to discover that God can take, him, take them out of that as well. He's in control of all things. There was another set of gears turning behind the scenes. Not just their rebellion and their hearts turning away. But God was working. The Lord himself had arranged these seven years of oppression. And when Israel cried out to him, the Lord listened. His prophet reminded them of his faithful covenant love. To point out their abandonment of him, how they had not listened. God's purpose in the pain of Midianite oppression was not to send them packing, but to reawaken their hearts and redirect their steps back to him. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 5, is echoing something from Proverbs chapter 3 when it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And so it can be so easy, especially when things are not going well, sometimes when they are going well, it can be so easy and common to fail to fully grasp the situations we find ourselves in. But whatever we're going through as a child of God, whether we can see the connection to our own rebellious choices or we find ourselves immersed in and confused by what appears to be pointless pain. We need eyes to see 
and faith to grasp that we belong to a loving God who is in control of all things. And in all he does, his purpose is always to draw us back to himself, that our hearts would be devoted to him alone and our steps reordered to walk in his ways. So like Gideon, we can fail to grasp that, grasp our circumstances and situations. But like him, I think we can also struggle to believe that the Lord would choose to accomplish his plan and his purposes through us. We can struggle to believe that the Lord would choose to accomplish his plan and his purposes through us. Look at verse 14. It says, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The angel of the Lord is an expression often used in the Old Testament. It's a, uh, an appearance of God before the incarnation of Jesus when he came as a, the God-man in Bethlehem. And it's clear that this, is, this angel of the Lord is the Lord because we find him saying he's the Lord. And what do we find? That he appears to Gideon with a charge. That Gideon was being sent by God himself to be the very one through whom God would save Israel from the Midianites. Remember Gideon, the one who was wondering, God, where are you? Why don't you do something? Be careful when you pray those kinds of things, by the way. Um, and lo and behold, God shows up and reveals his plan of what he's going to accomplish. His pro I'm sorry, yeah, his actions here, sorry, the wording is reminiscent in tone. So here God is calling him, and the wording is reminiscent in tone and echoes some of the same things we know when God called Moses and Joshua, when he says, am I not the one sending you? But Gideon, like Moses, didn't seem too keen, did he? Moses said, oh, send my brother. And Gideon says, who me? See, he took a look at the job description, compared it to the work experience on his CV, weighed it further against his personal history and family connections, and concluded, Lord, you have the wrong candidate. How can I do this? Everything about me personally and my family ties speaks to my weakness and inability to do what you're asking me to do. And from that perspective, finally, Gideon was exactly right. This assessment was accurate. But the Lord had told him to go in the strength that he had. What was that strength that the Lord was referring to that when taken into consideration overcame all the weakness and inability of Gideon? Now, the answer to that question is alluded to in the Lord's um, question to Gideon. Am I not sending you? And what's alluded to in verse 14 is very clearly stated in verse 16. I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites. See, Gideon was right to question and doubt his own ability to accomplish the purposes of God for the deliverance of Israel. But that was not the issue under consideration here. This was about what the Lord would do through Gideon. For his own glory and his people's salvation. Something that Gideon could never accomplish. This was about that. Even at that, Gideon still struggled. And again, lest we get too judgmental and self-righteous toward him, in our honest moments, we would have to acknowledge that we have similar struggles. We can also struggle in this way. See... Gideon struggled in ways that many of us do when it comes to knowing and doing the will of God. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. See, Gideon wanted to be certain and sure that the Lord was really speaking to him. 
Now, there definitely seems to be a bit more to uh, Gideon's request here than simply trepidation. It's, it's a, a bit of um, not just wanting clarity. His actions here in asking for a sign and later on when he sets out the wool fleece expose something of a weakness, you might think, in his faith and uh, a conviction of God's leading that needs bolstering and reinforcement. He goes wobbly from time to time. And again, before we assume an air of superiority here, most of us will struggle in a similar way, similar way to Gideon when it comes to really knowing if God is calling us to something. Now again, to be clear, there are clear, objective aspects of God's will that we read in the pages of the Bible that come in the form of commands and prohibitions. Commands, do this. Prohibitions, don't do this. Those are clear. And when we understand those uh, properly, these are God's will for everybody in all parts of life. We don't need any further clarification. He's spoken and we need to act. That's not what we're talking about here. We can and we will find ourselves in circumstances not unlike Gideon's when we perceive that God may be directing each of us individually to a course of action that is not clear and objective. You're not going to find it explicitly in the pages of, of this book. But it's in some sense subjective and personal to you, personal to me. Is God telling me to serve in a particular ministry in the church? Are we being led as a couple to adopt? Am I called to gospel ministry here in the UK or cross-culturally here in the UK or somewhere in the world? Lord, are you really speaking to me? Now, we lack the time to fully and fairly deal with discerning the will of God in situations like these. But in general, the more consequential the answers to these kinds of questions, the more likely most of us will feel like Gideon. Somewhat exposed, doubting our abilities, and fearing failure and being thought a fool we will clamor for clarity and assurance. Granted, there will be a minority of us who will jump right in before having any sense of scope of something, shooting first, asking question later. Honestly, I can say it tends to be a little bit more of an American tendency, if I'll say that. Um, but most of us, truth be told, are cautious and will struggle to believe that the Lord would choose to accomplish his plan and his purposes through us. Gideon struggled, but in his struggle... At least he stumbled forward, even if it wasn't pretty. He needed assurance and convincing, and at times he doesn't come across as overly heroic, but at the end of the day, Gideon did obey the voice of the Lord. So if you feel weak and unqualified, if you struggle to believe that the Lord would choose you to accomplish his plans and purposes through you, that is not a bad thing. If you somehow feel adequate in yourself, confident in your training, and secure in your CV, there is cause for grave concern. It is right to feel weak and doubt yourself, but when the Lord does clearly lead you, what can you know then? That you can have boldness and confidence that he sends you in his strength. The Apostle Paul himself in 2 Corinthians says this about weakness and the power of God in verse 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power might rest on me. So while each of us may struggle and stumble, may we at least stumble forward in the path he marks out for each of us and the strength that he provides in our weakness as he chooses to accomplish his plans and his purposes through us. And with that, we can witness the Lord do things we never could have possibly imagined. 
You see, Gideon may have initially uh, been encouraged by the army who responded to his trumpet call, gathering them together to face the Midianite invasion. But he likely never imagined what the Lord would have done in response to the 32,000 men who answered this call to arms. Verses 2 and 3, he said to Gideon, you have too many men. I can't deliver Midian into your hands like this. You're going to say, you did this. It was in our own strength. So he says, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of them left, just like that. The Lord set what could be considered a very low bar for being excused from the upcoming battle, if you ask me. I mean, how many soldiers in any time would say, no matter their skill, on the eve of battle, no fear. One wonders what went through Gideon's mind and heart with this one stroke, the Lord, not the enemy, the Lord reduced his force by over two-thirds and then he didn't stop. Gideon still had too many soldiers apparently and this process is repeated but with different and somewhat unusual criterion. So the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men, take them down to the water, I'll thin them out for you. This one shall go with you, he shall go, but if I say this one, he shouldn't. So what's the criterion? He says, separate those who lap the water with their tongue as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them cupped their hands and lapped like a dog. Now maybe at this point, Gideon had hopes that the Lord was distilling this force down to those with the greatest skill in fighting spirit, the SAS equivalent of ancient Israel. But instead, the Lord assessed their drinking habits. Whether they had the all-important military skill of drinking water like a dog. And in the end, Gideon was left with less than 1% of his original fighting force. And God says, that's about right. With these 300, God would do the unimaginable. But once again, Gideon, like us, would need bolstering and encouragement. So the Lord graciously instructs him to go with his servant Pura to the Midianite camp, where he assures him he'll have encouragement to attack. And what does he find? A force too numerous to count lays before them. They stealthily approach, and without a doubt, the content of this dream that's being communicated between these two soldiers is one of the most ridiculous things you could hear. I had a dream, he's saying, and this round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the camp and struck the tent with such force that it collapsed, which sounds ridiculous in and of itself. But the conclusion was... This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. The scene is absolutely ridiculous. Again, a loaf of bread violently striking a tent. Must how signal the defeat of Midian? Of course. Now, I don't go into dream interpretation or anything like that, but it seems rather far-fetched. They... Uh, Classic commentator Matthew Henry says he and his army were as inconsiderable as a cake made of little flour, as contemptible as barley cake, hastily got together as a cake suddenly baked upon the poles, and as unlikely to conquer this great army as a cake to overthrow a tent. But the last sentence is the one of greatest consequence for this Midianite raider states what Gideon needed to hear. Just as God had given Israel into Midianites, into the Midianites' hands, now he had given the Midianites into Gideon's hands. Unimaginable. And the manner in which it was accomplished is, is unimaginable as well. You know the story. Gideon comes back and, and gathers the troop and uh, divides them into 300 companies, the companies of 100, 300 men. He places trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them. You know the scene, usually in, a, in a, a war movie or something, before they go into battle, they distribute the weapons, the shields, there's this, mm, let's go, ah, and they get all worked up, 
And Gideon says, all right, let's break out the crockery and the torches and, and go on your way. And with flaming torches concealed in jars and trumpets, the humble band of 300 will surround an, an innumerable foe. And in all this, don't miss the unexpected transformation of Gideon from a fearful, hesitant hero to a man confident in God's leading. In verse 17, watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of camp, do exactly as I do. They get to the edge of camp, they reach their positions, they give the signal for the attack. And what happens? God does the unimaginable. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The Lord delivered his people in the most, most unimaginable way through the most unlikely and reluctant of heroes and against all odds from a human perspective. The strength for victory and the glory of the deliverance was his alone. So as we come to a point of concluding this, this journey through Judges 6 and 7, I couldn't help but think of the old poem by Cooper's Light Shining Out of Darkness. How God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. I hope this little journey uh, encourages you to look into these chapters further as there's so much here to get out. But I also pray that what we've covered tonight connects with your hearts and encourages you as we can so easily fail to grasp the circumstances we find ourselves in when things are not going right. Like Gideon, we can doubt and question God. But remember, no matter what happens, God has not abandoned you. He may well use circumstances to get your attention in mind and realign our hearts to him if and when we allow ourselves to drift off course or outright rebel. And even when we bear no personal responsibility, God's purpose in allowing our pain is always that we would be drawn to him. And when we grasp that, our response won't be doubt and despair, but life-giving repentance and faith in him. We can struggle to believe that God would choose to accomplish his plan and purpose through us who were in that line of weird and wonderful people, like the judges. But the Bible is filled with stories of God working the most unexpected, through the most unexpected and unlikely of people. It's a healthy thing to acknowledge our weakness. But we cannot let our sense of weakness hold us back in fear either from what God has called us to do, because we can witness the Lord do the unimaginable through people like us. Like so many other Old Testament stories, too, I'll just conclude with this. I can't help but see the foreshadowing of Jesus in all this. The Son of God who comes in weakness but ends up defeating an even greater enemy than the Midianites for you and for me. And many will fail to grasp that our greatest problem from which we need deliverance is our sin. Our own rebellious hearts turning behind the scenes that say, shove off God, I'm in charge. No to your rule. Many will struggle to believe that there's a God who really does love them or that Jesus' death nearly 2,000 years ago has any bearing on their life today. But he is their true deliverer and ours. The one who came to rescue us from our sin. And if we trust and believe this to be true and depend upon his strength to accomplish his plan of sharing the good news of Jesus, we too can witness the Lord do an unimaginable in us 
and through us for his kingdom and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for meeting with us in your word tonight. Thank you that it is true. And thank you that in all things it shows us ourselves. It's a mirror. It shows us you. It shows us ourselves. And Lord, the worst thing we could do tonight is to hear your word and not respond in some way. Lord, would you draw us to yourself right now? Would you help us even now as perhaps we are struggling to absorb uh, what you've communicated to us this night? Would you help us at the very least to see that you are a God who rescues and saves those who realize they need rescuing and saving. And you do it through the most unusual of people and the most unusual of circumstances. But Lord, we see it most in the Lord Jesus who walked the path to Calvary with the cross and suffered and died there to deliver us. That you worked in ways Lord, the cross that we would have never imagined, that no human being would have ever conceived. But you did this in your great wisdom and in your great mercy. That you did this so that we could be restored to you. As you've delivered your people in the past, you've made a way for your people to be delivered now, to be delivered from sin. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see not just Gideon, but the full scope of Scripture, and to see ourselves and to worship you, and to respond in repentance and faith for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.